This, uh, this week, as we continue on in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, it's hard to believe We're, we wrap up Ephesians in the next few weeks. But this week, uh, I got a text from uh, a group message from Pastor Rick. He's one of the elders back at the, uh, the Fort Worth congregation. He's 76. He loves Jesus. He has seen a lot in his uh, days. He was radically saved. He's been in a helicopter accident. He has all of these life stories uh, and the Lord saved him and his wife, Lynette, later on in life. Uh, but at 76 years old, I love that the text I got was to a group of men who said, man, at my age, I'm still learning and seeing and growing, and I'm still blown away at the goodness of God. I'm still amazed that God used his son Jesus to turn this world upside down. And it was encouraging as I read that. It was, it was thought-provoking, and his, his angle was coming from John chapter 8. And he's like, man, can you just imagine? He encouraged us in this long text. He encouraged us, could you just imagine being in the crowd and hearing the words of Jesus that radically shaped and transformed and literally turned their culture on its head, turned it upside down. Can you imagine listening to this man named Jesus, this Messiah, this prophet? Could you imagine hearing him? All of the stirring conversations, all of the, is, is he who he says he is? All of the things that people were saying about him. Can you imagine being there and how interesting it must have been to see the water turn into wine, to see uh, him feed the thousands, the multitudes with a, just a very little Lunchable? Could you imagine being there, who he was, what he was saying, what he wasn't saying as the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day would ask questions and he would in return with kind of a little bit of sarcasm. That's what I love about just his personality. He was fully human, and he just answered back with a question. Well, who do you say I am? Like, can you imagine being there? How oddly and strangely he was in the eyes of their culture. He healed people. He cast out demons. And here's what I loved about that, where I was going with it. I love that at 76 years old, God was still showing him new things about his word. And here it is. Jesus radically changes everything. Like it was just confirming. He didn't know where I had been the last few weeks. Uh, he's been sick. And it was just a, a, an affirming, confirming message that Jesus radically changes everything. We've looked over and over through Ephesians how the gospel will change everything. The gospel will transform every area of our lives. How we live inside of our souls and how we live on the outside. How we live inside this church with brothers and sisters and how we live outside. Every relationship we see is radically transformed by the gospel. It's marked with the love and the grace and the humility of Jesus Christ. And just over the last few weeks, we looked at wives and then husbands. Last week, we looked at children and parents under the, this umbrella of the household, if you will. Let's see our text this morning and see what God might have for us. Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9 says this, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord, 
Verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Now, to be very clear, as we do every week, I feel like we got to talk about this, right? Like, welcome to Grace Church. If this is your first time, slaves and masters, let's go. Let's see what God has. But not one of those texts where I just, this isn't just one of those texts where I just assume we're all on the same page here. Like you hear that and I know walls might go up, walls might come down, but it's important why we do the work and look at the text, why we actually dig in is so that we know the context here. What is Paul talking about? Who's the writer? What's he asking? What is his aim here? Who is he writing to? What's happening even culturally as we read this? Because what happens if we don't do this, if we don't just pause and just say, well, I could skip over this. This seems to be a hot topic or something I don't want to touch, slaves and masters in our current climate. Uh, I, we just skip over that, but that's not what the word of God asks us to do. It asks us to exegete God's word. What is he saying to them and what might he have for us? And if we don't stop and do that work and consider that, then things are taken out of context. You get Philippians 4.13 written on a weight room wall that tells all of your athletes that they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. And that means bench press and power cleans, right, Sean? No, that's not what that means. But the whole point of that is that we can just cherry pick verses and take things out of context where you get words or phrases that are used against the original intent. Or maybe we just don't take the time to truly understand what might be happening here in this time for that audience in order for the text to be written in such a way. And so I want us to, to stop and to pause and consider, because if we're not careful, poor interpretation is going to lead to poor application. You're either just going to skip over this because it's hard, and I don't really know how to explain it, and, and you just read past it, or... You're going to take this out of context and think, oh, this is what that means. This text being a prime example of why we do the work when we read God's word. We can read this with the wrong lens. It could go a lot of different ways, right? The Bible's horrible. It condones slavery. How can this book be such a good book? Listen, this is what it says. The Bible condones slavery. You could take that out of context and see that. You could also take it and read this and say, well, why did God design us to be slaves? What kind of God is that? Or you can look at this text and see that, well, maybe Paul was pro-slavery because he talks about slaves. There must be a superior class or race. If you don't go all the way back to chapter 4 and see that, no, Christ actually tore down the wall of hostility and there's a new race and one family, you take this out of context. Or you can read this and just jump straight to application. I think Paul, well, all he's doing is just telling us that our jobs are to be viewed as slaves and masters. And my only choice is to suffer, or as a master, a boss, if you will, I own the people that work for me, and take it out of context. All terrible, but all a possibility when we view Scripture with the wrong lens. And if our lens, the only lens we have to view this text is from our own historical lens in the history of America, then it's no wonder in our culture that we jump to conclusions like when it comes to, to how this does or does not apply to our everyday lives or how people might view God even in light of this text. So let's think about the framework just real quick. Let's do the work let's, so that we can see what God might have for us. Remember, Paul's addressing the relationships of the household. And he started with husband and wife. 
and then children and parents, and now under that same umbrella of the household, we see slaves and masters. Now, culturally speaking, so we're all on the same page, this was not odd in Roman society. It wasn't odd for there to be slaves and masters. And here's why. Typically, slaves in this culture were not based on any sort of race, any sort of ethnicity, or even any sort of social class. Matter of fact, most slaves found themselves as one by their own doing. In other words, they found themselves as a slave by their own doing. This is how they would gain their Roman citizenship. They would, or how they would work off the debt that they owed. It was built into the culture for them. So now, of course, this doesn't mean every slave uh, and master relationship came with, without abuse or neglect or people being taken advantage of. I'm not saying every relationship here with slave and master was perfect. That's why Paul's writing this letter. It radically changes this. But for the most part... It was a respectable relationship, so much so that it would have actually been hard to tell, to discern between a slave and a free person. You read all throughout history, whether it's biblical text or just his, historical text, you can see that slaves were actually faithful workers. They had great responsibility. They actually owned their own land. They might have even been business owners themselves, and they could have even had their own slaves. Typically, they would also they, they wouldn't even live maybe on the same premises. Same household as far as on paper, but they might have had their own business, their own place, lived separately from their owners. And by the time they were 30 years old, half of the slaves were deemed free because they had paid off their debt. There was an end to this slavery for them. So just knowing the context of this passage, it's super helpful. It's, it's very clarifying because it makes it a bit easier for us to see how much more civilized this relationship was with slaves and masters when compared to our own historical context here in the West or anywhere throughout history where you see slavery has been condoned. So one more time to be very clear, Paul nor any other writer anywhere else in scriptures ever condones the owning of a person, of an individual, or any expression of racism and nationalism. The gospel message absolutely demolishes this as pure evil. From cover to cover, y'all, it pushes back through the light of the gospel. Over and over again, you see the teachings of God full of grace and love and justice and peace you see things like love your neighbor, not own them. Treat others the way that you want to be treated, right? Surely you want to be treated fairly and rightly. You see things like love does no wrong to a neighbor. Instead, what does it do? It sacrificially loves and serves. Slavery nor master are never viewed positively in the Bible. You could go all the way back to Exodus and think about the Egyptians and the Israelites and their relationship of years of harsh and unfair and shameful treatment. The gospel family is what actually sets us free from this bondage. Christ came to what? To set the captive free. So all of the biblical teachings, it undermines any source of of racism or unfair treatment. How do I know that? Ephesians 5, earlier Paul says, imitate God. Well, who is God? Psalm 68, he's a father to the fatherless. He is a God of justice, Psalm 146. He, God, judges the oppressors and he cares for the vulnerable. 
Earlier, Paul tells us that Christ has torn down the wall of hostility, that at the cross there's zero favoritism. Whether slave or masters, what? We are united now to the same lordship of Christ Jesus. Further, with Paul's teachings here, there's a new race. I mentioned this earlier, new race, new family, where we're brothers and sisters, no longer slaves and masters, where we're one body, all sons and daughters through faith. Y'all, there's no other message that is more sweet to our souls than the one of the father who actually loves his children richly and deeply. And then on top of that, the father who actually desires his children to see that right now you can see, you can know, and you can experience that same gospel love. Big picture. One line I could have said, but I didn't want to just move on from that. The gospel changes everything. So Paul and his disciples, they were teaching this message, right? It was a countercultural message, and it was spreading like a wildfire through every community, through every church, through normal men and women like you and I, and it was radically turning this world upside down in this culture. And this is what Paul is getting to here, that if you are in Christ, if you've been united to him, then it changes your marriage how you worship God through how you love and serve one another. How it changes how you parent, how you worship God through our parenting and how it also changes how you work, how you work as worship. Just a little side note, as I was thinking about that this week, with, with that culturally in mind, remember a house church, he's writing to men and women, empty nesters, uh, single parents, he's writing to children, he's writing to all of this, Could you imagine sitting in that house, these different congregations, and this letter being read? Can you imagine the looks? I kind of joked about this a few weeks ago, that as he starts talking uh, to wives, like the husband's like, yeah, you better listen up. Or as he pivots and starts talking to the husbands, the wife is like glaring at him, like, hey, are you, you paying attention to this? Or as he's talking about children and parents obeying the kids, or the parents are just like looking down, thinking, yes, obey your parents, children. Like, can you just imagine that? Paul's getting at every area of their life, and then all of a sudden, he pivots, and it starts getting a little bit more real. Because in this room, you also have slaves and masters. Paul's messing with their livelihood at this point. Every area of their life, the gospel is messing with their lives. It's turning their lives upside down. It's digging into their hearts because everything is affected by the gospel. It radically changes every area of our lives, including how we work. Now, to be clear, with all of that, we all have a Christ-centered calling to work unto Christ. We're going to see that here very clearly. Since the garden, we've been working. We've been tilling up the land. We've been cultivating. We've been keeping watch over We've been maintaining, we've been producing, we've been using our God-given gifts and talents to bring glory to God as we maintain this world that he's placed us on. So this morning, whether you love your job or feel like you're just hanging on, maybe you feel like you're just enduring to the end, maybe you absolutely hate your job, or whether you work for the most incredible boss or the worst, I want you to see that we are called to do our jobs well with all excellence, as Paul says, as working unto the Lord and not to man. 
So with this in mind, Paul gives us in our text, I'm not going to read, we're not going to go word by word, but I want to see that he gives us some clarity on how we as workers, what we're to do. If you're in this room, you are a worker, children included. Just obey the labor laws, okay? Uh, Number one, what does Paul tell us that we are to do? Well, he says, obey with fear and trembling as workers. He's telling them to take your calling seriously. If you're going to walk worthy of the calling, then you need, to, you need to take wherever you find yourself in whatever season, in whatever job, take your calling seriously. Worship God through it. He gave you this job. Worship Him through it. And also, the most important thing, take it seriously because you're working unto the Lord and not to man. So obey with fear and trembling. Not fear of what your master, your boss is doing Not in even fear that God is going to put his hand down on you and, and push his thumb on you and make you endure. He might make you endure through some suffering. He might do that for, your glory, for his glory and for your good, however. He's saying obey with fear and trembling because the God of the universe loves you so much, has given you sweet gifts to use to work for his glory and your good. Second thing we see, work wholeheartedly. Paul says, with a sincere heart, do the will of God wholeheartedly. This is not a call to be lazy. That's what Paul is trying to wake them up. As he writes this letter, he's saying, hey, remember, work as until you're working to the Lord. Wholeheartedly. Work faithfully unto the Lord. Have a good attitude. Have a good attitude as you're working. It was a reminder for them that they are being watched, not just by their earthly master, he says, but by their new master, the Lord. They are to work as if they are working unto the Lord. God sees all, right? He sees all, he knows all, and he desires his children to be faithful and to obey in all things. So work wholeheartedly. It's this call to do it all for the glory of God. Another thing you see here, Paul says work expectantly. What does he say? Paul was reminding them that the ultimate reward was to come. He will receive this back from the Lord. So work with, uh, obey with fear and trembling, work wholeheartedly, and then work expectantly. That your work doesn't go unnoticed. It was a call for them, for the Ephesians, to, to be faithful even in the little. Slave or master, parent, mother, child, whatever, husband, wife, be faithful, work expectantly. It doesn't go unnoticed. Your work is never being done in vain, And then Paul shifts in verse 9. That's that first section, 6, 7, and 8. And in verse 9, he speaks to masters, to the bosses, if you will. Again, with this in mind, I want you to hear this. He's not thinking your secondary workers and your primary bosses. He's doing this with the mind that slave and master were under now this new lordship of their master, Jesus Christ. So though earthly, even socially, You have uh, masters and slaves. You have bosses and workers. Ultimately, in the kingdom of God, he is our Lord. He is what unites all things under him for his glory. So he shifts here and he says, Masters, treat your slaves as you would Christ. He's trying to stir in their hearts to think, how would you actually treat Christ? Because it's probably not poorly how you're doing to your slaves it's probably with all reverence, with all respect, with all love, with all understanding. If you could think back to walk worthy of the calling, with all gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with one another. 
So he's, he's calling out the bosses and saying, Masters, treat your slaves as you would Christ. He's saying, practice mutuality. Treat those who work for you with dignity and respect as you would want to be treated. So think here, integrity, respect, humility, and gentleness. Again, he's, he's calling out, saying, practice mutuality. What else does he say? He says, avoid hostility, not threatening. Hey, masters, you're not to lord over. You're not to bully your employees. You're not to employ them for your own good. You're not to just bully over and lord over. That's not the way of God. He's gentle. He's kind. He's loving. Sure, consequences of sin, 100%. Paul's saying, avoid that hostility. Don't be threatening. He also reminds them that they are to be accountable. He says, you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. What he's doing right here is he's calling back to Proverbs chapter 22, where he says, the poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord made them both. He's reminding masters that they will be accountable. You will stand before the ultimate judge, creator of the universe, and you will answer for all things, including, masters, how you treat the slaves. Bosses, how you entreat employees. Fathers, how you fathered your children. Mothers, how you served sacrificially. Pastors, how you shepherded the flock. We will all stand and give an account and it's no different between masters and slaves. Why? Again, because we're under the umbrella of who Jesus Christ is, our Lord and Savior, the ultimate master. And then I think he does a good job of just remembering, reminding them that God shows no favoritism. All created with, with dignity and love and purpose, marked in the image of God. The cross does not discriminate. So there's this exhortation, if you will, to slaves and to masters, to workers and to bosses. So what does this mean for us? Like I could have gone by each one of those, but I think culturally speaking, we don't have slaves and masters. And so the more I just sat there and studied and read, the more I was like, okay, well, we have bosses, we have workers, but at the same time, if we're all called to be workers, how do we address this? Because I don't think you can just read this text and move on. It has something for every one of us in this room. So to those who work, which is everyone, this could be serving your family in the house or actually as an employer or as an employee. I want you to hear this. We are sent to be on mission. Like the mission of God involves you. The creator of the universe invites you in to his mission. So you are sent. That's the reason we do a benediction every week. We want to encourage you that you are being sent out on mission in your workplaces, in your families, with the aim that we would walk worthy of this calling, that we'd make the most time. We'd be shrewd merchants. We'd buy up all of our time, that every day, every conversation, every interaction would be on purpose for the Lord, for his mission, for his glory and your good. So I think that's what what we can take from this is that we are being sent out every day on mission. And you can think about that in the different areas of your life. If the gospel truly radically changes everything, 
And you're called to live a countercultural life. And that means every friendship, every job that you have, every family member, every time that you go to the same coffee shop, all of your relationships, all of them, you are now being called to steward them for His glory. So wherever you find yourself, consider yourself sent this morning from the true master. That's been my whole prayer this week. You know, it's easy to, well, it's not easy to plant a church, but it's easy to, to get things up off the ground and then just become, uh, I've had multiple people over the time say, hey, what sets you apart? Well, from the get-go, we said we don't want to just be another Sunday service. There's plenty of those, and they're all great. There's a ton of Sunday services. So what sets you apart? Well, Lord willing, we are this family of family who ferociously love Jesus, who want to make God's glory known throughout all of the earth, and we want to start as we are sent this morning, wherever the Lord has us, that we would be hospitable, that we would be loving, that we would be caring, that we would actually imitate the Father. And you're like, well, that should be every church's mission. Yeah, it, it should be. Sorry, I keep tripping over the cowhide. It should be every church's mission. Lord willing, we don't ever mission drift. That's my hope and prayer, that we say, no, this is what we're doing. So more people would meet Jesus. We don't have all these programs. We don't have this huge church. Well, we have a huge church building. We rent it. I don't know what the, the next few years look like for us. I don't know if we'll have our own building. I don't know if we'll add this program or that. Right now, I just want us to be a family of families who are faithful in the little, who says, here I am, Lord, use me wherever you have me. In fourth grade, at this school, uh, in this program, in this institution, at this job, at this coffee shop, for this time, right now, Lord, use me. Just sold out. God, would you use me in a mighty way? So whether you're an employee or an employer, if you're breathing, you have purpose from the Father this morning. I want to leave us with three quick things, three truths that I see here in Scripture from Paul. Number one is that we would work and lead through Christ. Remember, Paul's writing this letter to the church where there's Christian brothers and sisters. They've been given this new life, radically changed from death to life. Grace has been lavished the Spirit is upon them. They now live Spirit-empowered lives. So when I say work and lead through Christ, that means that we, as a body of believers, we don't live this life alone. The living Christ, the Spirit of God, lives within you. You, me, as believers, we would be filled with the Spirit of the living God as we do our work as we fold our laundry at the house, as we make our kids' lunches, as you edit spreadsheets, on your 45-minute commute to and from work, in your purchasing department, in your building as a contractor, as you clean, that as we would, we would do what Paul says, do unto the Lord. Work through Christ, lead through Christ, work as if you're working unto the Lord. Do you pray before you go to work? Just simple, some very simple questions for you. How do I do this? Do you pray before you go to work? Do you pray for the Spirit to fill you and for God to use you as a missionary where you work? Again, as you're folding laundry, as you're making a meal, as you're going to this work, as you're stopping at this place, 
do we truly live through Christ, spirit-empowered body of believers? Because sometimes I think we just wake up and we just go through the same thing. Every day, we do the same thing with no real intention. We're not being wise, shrewd merchants. We're not buying up the time that we have with our children. We're not buying up the time we have. It's not by accident you have this gifting at this job for this specific season, sitting next to this specific person. Students, it's not by accident you show up to your English class every week and you sit by this specific student who has this specific thing that you, as a Christian, right now can actually speak truth and life to. Children, youth, you are missionaries in this too. You, as a Christian, have been given the Spirit of God. So think about that. All of us, do we pray before we go to work? Start there. Lord, would you use this mundane Monday for your glory? Would you help me be present? Would you help me hear what your people are dealing with? Would you help me lead in a way that is Spirit-led? Would your spirit lead and guide me through everything? Number two, we work and lead like Christ. So through Christ, then we work and lead like Christ. Remember, our example is our big brother. In all humility, Christ was the perfect example, and it's all found in him. Uh, Paul tells us in Philippians 2.7 that even Christ took the form of a slave, of a servant, He left his throne to what? To come to us in order that he might seek and save the lost, Luke 19. Or Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We have the perfect example through Jesus Christ. He worked himself for 30 years. He grew up in a house. He worked. He learned the law. He worked with his hands as a carpenter. He worked unto his father. So that means Jesus didn't show respect or disrespect. Jesus didn't lie on his timesheets. What did he do? He joyfully and humbly served as unto the heavenly father. So, employee, you should be an amazing employee. You should be the person that everybody can count on. You should be the one that when their project pops up, there's no questions asked. Not just because you have that gifting, but because you're modeling your big brother Jesus. And in all humility, you're like, yes, here I am. I'm ready to serve. Not to please man, as Paul says, but to work unto Christ. We should be the employees that work hard, that strive for excellence. Not for people-pleasing, but to be faithful You should be reliable. You should be someone who is known for working hard unto the Lord. It's not a call to slouch. It's not a call to just take it easy and to coast through your job. It's a call to work hard. Christ worked hard. That's our example. Even from an evangelistic opportunity, I want you to think about this. Christian workers should work in a way that non-believers see the gospel through their work ethic and how they carry themselves. Your non-believing friends, co-workers, should see something different in you. As gossip arises, put it to rest. Hey guys, we probably shouldn't be talking about that. I appreciate it. If we just, I mean, if you got a problem with, with so-and-so, let's just go talk to them. Inviting them in to actual reconciliation with brother and, or with friend actually opens up the door for you to invite them into being reconciled to the one who actually 
cares, the Father of the heavens. Evangelism in the workplace. It's a great opportunity. They should see how you carry yourselves. Employers, what does this mean for you as you think about leading like Christ? Well, again, you have the, you have the example, the perfect servant, the ultimate servant and ultimate master. Servant leadership. Think about husbands and wives, fathers to children. What did Jesus do? He showed up. He worked hard. Over and over again, you see him on his hands and knees washing his disciples' feet, preparing the meal. He worked hard alongside his disciples. Fully God and fully man. He could have said, go do this, go do this, just do this for me. Very easily, and it probably would have been way more effective. But the beauty of the gospel is that he uses ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things. And he's inviting you into that. He wasn't a dictator. That's not our model. Our model is servant king Jesus, the chief shepherd. So work and lead like Christ. Work and lead through Christ. And the last thing I have for us is I want us to see that we are to work and lead for Christ. John Stott says, It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, for accountants to audit books and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Christ Jesus. Work and lead for Christ in every area of your life. Work hard now. Christ sees this. And the promise that we have here from Paul is that he will honor you later. Your work matters. Now hear me, it's not what saves you, but you were saved, as Paul says back in chapter 2, for good works. God honors your faithfulness. Our goal, end result, should be to stand before the Father and, and to hear, good and faithful servant, well done. Like that's, that's the reward we're going for is that the Father would look and say, well done, good and faithful servant. How do you do this as an employer, as the leader? Well, you lead for Christ, work for Christ, lead for Christ. You're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. You, as an employer, as a leader, you're going to give an, an account. You work as unto Christ for him. That is your accountability. You honor him in your leadership by being faithful and truthful. You don't take advantage of your employees. You don't do things that are unethical. Again, you'll stand before the judge and answer for everything that we do. Lead for Christ. Serve for Christ. Just in closing, if, if we have this right gospel lens that I've been talking about over the last, I feel like, few months, um, this right lens, if we look at our lives through the lens of the good news of Jesus... And if it shapes and radically changes everything for us, then it's going to stir our hearts to want to do unto the Lord every good thing. What is good, right, and true is what Paul says. That includes our work. So as sent people this morning, we are sent out to work well, to lead well, to be faithful stewards of the time and resources that he's given us, to be faithful stewards of the relationships that he's opened us up for. 
to be faithful stewards to our gifting that he's uniquely wired and gifted you. House mom to CEO. Uniquely given gifts. Spirit-empowered believers. Would we be a church that walks out of these walls ready to go, ready to serve our neighbors, ready to be the best employees that we can be, ready to be the best employers that we can be? Because we're modeling our big brother and we're pointing people to Jesus whether we're in school as a student, as a teacher, whatever it is. May we just bring glory to God. May we be excited and joyful. I get it. Your work is not fun right now. Work as if you're working unto the Lord. Prayerfully consider. Lord, is there, is there something coming up different for me? I don't think God just laughs and looks down at you and says, I just want you to be miserable right now. I think you just need to be miserable. I don't think that's true and right. I don't think it's good. You might be in a season of suffering. But if he's given you gifts, prayerfully consider, am I doing everything I can to steward those gifts for his glory and for my good? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Help us to live for you. I think, uh, I think just pausing, um, considering that we actually get to work for you. I've had a lot of different bosses over the years that would just tell or yell at, you know, yell for this to be done. They wouldn't model grace. They wouldn't show grace. No compassion. I just think about you as being Lord and master of our lives. Are patient with us. You're kind to us. You show compassion. You're honest with us. You love us. You care for us. You meet our needs through our jobs right now. You show us humility. You model that. Think about being in that room when you, Jesus, washed your disciples' feet. At that moment, you were master, you were God, and yet you knelt before men who would betray you, and you, you washed their feet. They're dirty, they're smelly, nasty feet, knowing good and well who would betray you shortly after that and you still served sacrificially and then you took it a step further and you went to the cross for us you sacrificed everything for us you carried my shame and my guilt and my anger all of my sin you bore it upon your shoulders and as the time came you looked to the Father and it was finished as you took your last breath it was finished 